0: part three chapters one to four of dr Dolittle's post office this librivox recording is in the public domain dr Dolittle's post office by hugh Lofting. part three chapter one the animal's magazine the next thing i must tell you about is the prize story competition the fame of the puddleby fireside circle where the doctor had amused his pets with so many interesting tales had become quite a famous institution. Tutu had gossiped about it. Gub-Gub, Jip, and the White Mouse had boasted of it. You see, they were always proud that they could say they were part of the great man's regular household. And before long, through this new post office of their own, creatures all over the world were speaking of it and discussing it by letter. Next thing, the doctor began to receive requests for stories by mail he had become equally famous as an animal doctor an animal educator and an animal author from the far north letters came in by the dozen from polar bears and walruses and foxes asking that he send them some light entertaining reading as well as his medical pamphlets and books of etiquette the winter nights weeks and weeks long up there grew frightfully monotonous they said after their own supply of stories had run out because you couldn't possibly sleep all the time, and something had to be done for amusement on the lonely ice floes and in the dens and lairs beneath the blizzard-swept snow. For some time, the doctor was kept so busy with more serious things that he was unable to attend to it. But he kept it in mind until he should be able to think out the best way of dealing with the problem. Now his pets, after the post-office work got sort of settled and regular, often found it somewhat hard to amuse themselves in the evenings one night they were all sitting around on the veranda of the houseboat wondering what game they could play when jip suddenly said i know what we can do
1: let's get the doctor to tell us a story oh you've heard all my stories said the doctor why don't you play hunt the slipper
2: the houseboat isn't big enough
1: said Dab
2: last time he played it gub-gub got stuck by the push-me-pull yous horns you've got plenty of stories tell us one doctor just a short one
1: but what shall i tell you a story about asked john Doolittle
3: about a turnip field
0: said gub-gub no that won't do said jip doctor why don't you do what you did sometimes by the fire in puddleby turn your pockets out upon the table till you come to something that reminds you of a story you remember
1: all right
0: said the doctor but
1: and then an idea came to him look here he said you know i've been asked for stories by mail the creatures around the north pole wanted some light reading for the long winter nights i'm going to start an animals magazine for them I'm calling it the Arctic Monthly it will be sent by mail and be distributed by the Nova Zembla branch office so far so good but the great problem is how to get sufficient stories and pictures and articles and things to fill a monthly magazine no easy matter now listen if I tell you animals a story tonight you'll have to do something to help me with my new magazine every night when you want to amuse yourselves We'll take it in turns to tell a story. That will give us seven stories right away. There will only be one story printed each month. The rest of the magazine will be news of the day, a medical advice column, a baby and mother's page, and odds and ends. Then we'll have a prize story competition. The readers shall judge which is the best, and when they write to us here and tell us, we'll give the prize to the winner. What do you say?
3: what a splendid idea
1: cried gub-gub
3: i'll tell my story to-morrow night i know a good one now go ahead doctor
0: then john doolittle started turning his trouser pockets out onto the table to try and find something that reminded him of a story it was certainly a wonderful collection of objects that he brought forth there were pieces of string and pieces of wire stub-ends of pencils pocket-knives with blades broken coat buttons boot buttons a magnifying glass a compass and a
1: corkscrew there doesn't seem to be anything very hopeful there said the doctor
2: who in your waistcoat pockets
1: said tutu
0: they were always the most interesting you haven't turned them out since you left puddleby there must be lots in them so the doctor turned out his waistcoat pockets these brought forth two watches, one that went and one that didn't, a measuring tape, a piece of cobbler's wax, a penny with a hole through it, and a clinical thermometer. What's that? asked Gupgub,
1: pointing to the thermometer. That's for taking people's temperature with, said the doctor. Oh, that reminds me. Ooh, of a
0: story, cried Tutu. I knew it would, said Jip a thing like that must have a story to it what's the name of the story doctor
1: well said the doctor settling himself back in his chair i think i'll call this story the invalids strike
3: what's a strike
1: asked gub gub
3: and what on
1: earth is an invalid cried the push-me-pull you a strike said the doctor is when people stop doing their own particular work in order to get someone else to give them what they want. And an invalid, well, an invalid is a person who is always, um, uh, more or less, uh, ill. But what kind of work is invalid's work? Asked the white mouse. Their work is, um, uh, staying ill, said the doctor. Stop asking questions, or I'll never get this story started.
3: Wait a minute,
1: said Gub-Gub.
3: My foot's gone to sleep your feet
0: cried dab-dab
3: let the doctor get on with his
2: story
1: is it a good story asked gub-gub well said the doctor i'll tell it and then you can decide for yourself stop fidgeting now and let me begin it's getting late chapter two the doctor's story as soon as the doctor had lit his pipe and got it well going he began many years ago At the time I bought this thermometer, I was a very young doctor, full of hope and just starting out in business. I fancied myself a very good doctor, but I found that the rest of the world did not seem to think so, and for many months after I began, I did not get a single patient. I had no one to try my new thermometer on. I tried it on myself quite often, but I was always so frightfully healthy I never had any temperature anyway. I tried to catch a cold. I didn't really want a cold, you understand, but I did want to make sure that my new thermometer worked. But I couldn't even catch a cold. I was very sad healthy, but sad. Well, about this time, I met another young doctor who was in the same fix as myself, having no patients. So he said to me, I'll tell you what we'll do we'll start a sanitarium.
3: What's a sanitarium?
1: asked gub-gub a sanitarium said the doctor is a sort of mixture between a hospital and a hotel where people stay who are invalids well i agreed to this idea then i and my young friend his name was phipps dr cornelius q phipps took a beautiful place way off in the country and we furnished it with wheelchairs and hot water bottles and ear trumpets and the things that invalids like And very soon, patients came to us in hundreds, and our sanitarium was quite full up, and my new thermometer was kept quite busy. Uh, Of course, we made a lot of money, because all these people paid us well. And Phipps was very happy. But I was not so happy. I had noticed a peculiar thing. None of the invalids ever seemed to get well and go away. And finally, I spoke of this to Phipps. My dear Doolittle, he answered, Go away? Of course not. We don't want them to go away. We want them to stay here, so they'll keep on paying us. Phipps, I said, I don't think that's honest. I became a doctor to cure people, not to pamper them. Well, on this point we fell out and quarreled. I got very angry and told him I would not be his partner any longer, that I would pack up and go the following day. As I left his room, still very angry, I passed one of the invalids in his wheelchair. It was Sir Timothy Quisby, our most important and expensive patient. He asked me, as I passed, to take his temperature, as he thought he had a new fever. Now I had never been able to find anything wrong with Sir Timothy, and had decided that being an invalid was a sort of a hobby with him. So, still very angry, instead of taking his temperature, I said quite rudely, Oh! Go to the dickens! Sir Timothy was furious, and calling for Dr. Phipps, he demanded that I apologize. I said I wouldn't. Then Sir Timothy told Phipps that if I didn't, he would start an invalid strike. Phipps got terribly worried and implored me to apologize to this very special patient. I still refused. Then a peculiar thing happened. Sir Timothy, who had always so far seemed too weak to walk, got right out of his wheelchair, and waving his ear trumpet wildly, ran around all over the sanitarium, making speeches to the other invalids, saying how shamefully he had been treated and calling on them to strike for their rights. And they did strike, and no mistake. That night at dinner they refused to take their medicine, either before or after meals. Dr. Phipps argued with them, "'prayed them, implored them to behave like proper invalids "'and carry out their doctor's orders. "'But they wouldn't listen to him. "'They ate all the things they had been forbidden to eat, "'and after dinner those who had been ordered to go for a walk "'stayed at home, "'and those who had been ordered to stay quiet "'went outside and ran up and down the street. "'They finished the evening by having a pillow fight "'with their hot water bottles "'when they should have been in bed. "'The next morning they all packed their own trunks and left.' And that was the end of our sanitarium. But the most peculiar thing of all was this I found out afterwards that every single one of those patients had got well. Getting out of their wheelchairs and going on strike had done them so much good they stopped being invalids altogether. As a sanitarium doctor, I suppose I was not a success. Still, I don't know. Certainly, I cured a great many more patients by going out of the sanitarium business than Phipps ever did by going into it. Chapter 3. Gub-Gub's Story
0: The next night, when they were again seated around the veranda after supper, the doctor asked,
1: Now, who's going to tell us a story tonight? Didn't Gub-Gub say he had one for us? Oh, don't let him tell one, doctor, said Jip. It's sure to be stupid.
2: He isn't old enough to tell a good story,
0: said Dab-Dab.
2: He hasn't had any experience.
1: Ooh, his only interest in life is food, anyway, said Tutu. Let someone else tell a story. No, now wait a minute, cried the doctor. Don't all be jumping on him this way. We were all young once. Let him tell his story. He may win the prize. Who knows? Come along, Gub-Gub. Tell us your story. What's the name of it? gub-gub fidgeted his feet blushed up to the ears and
0: finally said
3: this is a kind of a crazy story but it's a good one it's er er a piggish fairy tale it's called the magic cucumber
0: gosh growled jip more food murmured Tutu. what did i tell you <laughs>
1: tittered the white mouse. Go on, Gub-Gub, said the doctor. Don't take any notice of them. I'm listening.
3: Once upon a time,
1: Gub-Gub began,
3: a small pig went out into the forest with his father to dig for truffles. The father pig was a very clever truffle digger, and just by smelling the ground he could tell with great sureness the places where truffles were to be found well this day they came upon a place beneath some big oak trees and they started digging presently after the father pig had dug up an enormous truffle and they were both eating it they heard to their great astonishment the sound of voices coming from the hole out of which they had dug the truffle. The father pig hurried away with his child because he did not like magic. But that night, the baby pig, when his mother and father were fast asleep, crept out of his sty and went off into the woods. He wanted to find out the mystery of those voices coming from under the ground. So, reaching the hole where his father had dug up the truffle, he set to work digging for himself. He had not dug very long when the earth caved right in underneath him and he felt himself falling and falling and falling. At last he came to a stop, upside down in the middle of a dining table. The table was all set for dinner. "'and he had fallen into the soup. "'He looked about him and saw seated around the table "'many tiny little men, "'none of them more than half as big as himself "'and all a dark green in colour. "'Where am I?' asked the baby pig. "'You're in the soup,' said the little men. "'The baby pig was at first terribly frightened.' But when he saw how small were the men around him, his fear left him. And before he got out of the soup tureen on the table, he drank up all the soup. He then asked the little men who they might be, and they said, We are the cook goblins. We live under the ground, and we spend half our time inventing new things to eat, and the other half in eating them. The noise you heard coming out of the hole was us singing our food hymns. We always sing food hymns whenever we are preparing particularly fine dishes. Good, said the pig. I've come to the right place. Let us go on with the dinner. But just as they were about to begin on the fish, the soup was already gone, you see. There was a great noise outside the dining hall, and in rushed another lot of little men, a bright red in color. These were the toadstool sprites, ancient enemies of the cook-goblins. A tremendous fight began, one side using toothpicks for spears and the other using nutcrackers for clubs. The pig took the side of his friends, the cook-goblins, and, being as big as any two of the enemy put together, He soon had the toadstool sprites running for their lives. When the fight was over and the dining hall cleared, the cook goblins were very grateful to the baby pig for his valuable assistance. They called him a conquering hero and, crowning him with a wreath of parsley, they invited him to the seat of honor at the dining table and went on with the meal. Never had the baby pig enjoyed a meal so much in all his life as he did that one. He found that the cook goblins, as well as inventing new and marvelously tasty dishes, had also thought out a lot of new things in the way of table furnishings. For instance, they served pincushions with the fish. These were to stick your fish bones in, instead of leaving them to clutter up your plate. Pudding fans were another of their novelties. Fans for cooling off your pudding with, instead of blowing on it. Then they had cocoa-skin clotheslines. Little toy clotheslines to hang the skin off your cocoa on neatly. You know what a nasty mess it makes draped over the rim of your cup. And when the fruit came on, tennis rackets were handed around also. And if anyone at the other end of the table asked you for an apple... "'Instead of going to all the work of handing down a heavy bowl of fruit, "'you just took an apple and served it at him like a tennis ball, "'and he would catch it at the other end of the table on the point of a fork. "'These things added a good deal of jolliness to the meal, "'and some of them were very clever inventions. "'Why, they even had a speaking tube for things you are not allowed to mention at table.'
0: a speaking-tube the white mouse interrupted
3: how is it used i don't understand well
0: said gub-gub
3: you know how people are always telling you you mustn't speak about those things at table well the cook goblins had a speaking-tube in the wall which led at the other end to the open air outside and whenever you wanted to talk about any of the things forbidden at table you left the table and went and set it into the speaking tube then you came back to your seat it was a very great invention well as i was saying the baby pig enjoyed himself tremendously and when the meal was over he said he must be going back because he wanted to get into the sty before his mother and father should be awake the cook goblins were sorry to see him go and as a farewell present in return for the help he had given them against their enemies, they gave him the magic cucumber. Now this cucumber, if you cut off even the smallest part of it and planted it, would grow immediately into a whole field of any fruit or vegetable you wished. All you had to do was to say the name of the vegetable you wanted. The baby pig thanked the cook goblins, kissed them all goodbye, and went home. He found his mother and father still asleep when he got back. So after carefully hiding his magic cucumber under the floor of the cow barn, he crept into the sty and went fast asleep. Now, it happened that a few days later, a neighboring king made war upon the king that owned the country where the pig family lived. Things went very badly for the pig's king, and, seeing that the enemy were close at hand, he gave orders that all cattle and farm animals and people should be brought inside the castle walls. The pig family was also driven into the castle grounds. But before he left, the baby pig went and bit off a piece of his magic cucumber and took it along with him. Soon after the enemy's army closed about the castle and tried to storm it then for many weeks they remained there knowing that sooner or later the king and the people in the castle would run short of food and have to give in now it happened that the queen had noticed the baby pig within the castle grounds and being a princess of irish blood she took a great fancy to him "'and had a piece of green ribbon tied about his neck "'and made a regular pet of him, "'much to the disgust of her husband, the king. "'Well, the fourth week after the enemy came, "'the food in the castle was all gone, "'and the king gave orders that the pigs must be eaten. "'The queen raised a great outcry "'and begged that her pet should be spared. "'But the king was very firm. "'My soldiers are starving,' said he, "'Your pet, madam, must be turned into sausages.' "'Then the baby pig saw that the time to use the goblin's magic gift had come, "'and, rushing out into the castle garden, "'he dug a hole and planted his piece of cucumber "'right in the middle of the king's best rose bed. "'Parsnips,' he grunted as he filled in the hole, "'may they blossom acres wide. "'And sure enough,' he had hardly said the words before all over the king's garden parsnips began springing up thick and fast even the gravel walks were covered with them then the king and his army had plenty of food and growing strong on the nutritious parsnips they sallied forth from the castle smote the enemy hip and thigh and put them to flight and the queen was allowed to keep her pet pig which rejoiced her kind heart greatly, she being of Irish blood royal. And he became a great hero at the court and was given a sty studded with jewels in the center of the castle garden, on the very spot where he had planted the magic cucumber, and they all lived happily ever after. And that is the end of the piggish fairy tale.
0: Chapter 4. Dab-Dab's Story the animals now began to look forward to the evening story-telling the way people do to regular habits that are pleasant and for the next night they arranged among themselves beforehand that it should be dab-dab's turn to tell a tale after they were all seated on the veranda the housekeeper preened her feathers and in a very dignified voice began
2: on the outskirts of puddle beyond the marsh there is a farmer "'who swears to this day that his cat can understand every word he says. "'It isn't true, but both the farmer and his wife think it is. "'And I am now going to tell you how they came to get that idea. "'Once when the doctor was away in Scotland looking for fossils, "'he left me behind to take charge of the house. "'The old horse in the stable complained to me one night "'that the rats were eating up all his corn. "'When I was walking around the stable trying to think out what I should do about it, I spied an enormous white Persian cat stalking about the premises. Now, I myself have no love for cats. For one thing, they eat ducklings, and for another, they always seem to me sort of sneaky things. So I ordered this one to get off the doctor's property. To my surprise, she behaved very politely, said she didn't know she was trespassing, and turned to leave. Then I felt sort of guilty, knowing the doctor liked to be hospitable to every kind of animal, and, after all, the cat wasn't doing any harm there. So I overtook her and told her that if she didn't kill anything on the place, she could come and go as she pleased. Well, we got chatting, the way people do, and I found out that the cat lived at a farmer's house about a quarter of a mile down the Oxenthorpe Road. Then I walked part of the way home with her, still chatting, and I found... "'that she was a very agreeable individual. "'I told her about the rats in the stable "'and the difficulty I had in making them behave "'because the doctor wouldn't allow anyone to kill them, "'and she said if I wished, "'she'd sleep in the stable a few nights "'and the rats would probably leave "'as soon as they smelled her around. "'This she did, and the results were excellent. "'The rats departed in a body "'and the old horse's corn bin was left undisturbed. "'Then she disappeared.' and for several nights I saw nothing of her. So one evening I thought it would be only decent of me to call at her farm down the Oxenthorpe Road to thank her. I went to her farm and found her in the farmyard. I thanked her for what she had done and asked her why she hadn't been around to my place of late. "'I've just had kittens,' she said. Six, and I haven't been able to leave them a moment. They are in the farmer's parlour now. Come in and I'll show them to you.' "'So?' "'In we went, and on the parlour floor, in a round basket, "'there were six of the prettiest kittens you ever saw. "'While we were looking at them, "'we heard the farmer and his wife coming downstairs. "'So, thinking they might not like to have a duck in the parlour, "'some folks are so snobbish and pernickety, you know, "'not like the doctor, "'I hid myself behind a closet door, "'just as the farmer and his wife came into the room. "'They leaned over the basket of kittens,' stroked the white cat and started talking. Now, the cat didn't understand what they said, of course. But I, being round the doctor so much, and discussing with him the differences between duck grammar and people's grammar, understood every word they uttered. And this is what I heard the farmer say to his wife. "'We'll keep the black and white kitten, Lisa. I'll drown the other five tomorrow morning. Won't never do to have all of them cats running round the place.' His grammar was atrocious. As soon as they had gone, I came out of the closet, and I said to the white cat, I shall expect you to bring up these kittens to leave Docklings alone. Now listen. Tonight, after the farmer and his wife are in bed, take all your kittens, except the black and white one, and hide them in the attic. The farmer means to drown them, and is going to keep only one. The cat did as I bade her. And next morning... When the farmer came to take the kittens away, he found only the black and white one, the one he meant to keep. He could not understand it. Some weeks later, however, when the farmer's wife was spring-cleaning, she came upon the others in the attic, where the mother cat had hidden them and nursed them secretly. But they were now grown big enough to escape through the window, and they went off to find new homes for themselves. And that is why, to this day, that farmer and his wife swear their cat can understand English because, they say, she must have heard them when they were talking over the basket. And whenever she's in the room, and they are gossiping about the neighbours, they always speak in whispers, lest she overhear. But, between you and me, she doesn't really understand a single word they say.
0: End of Part 3, Chapter 4